last week we looked at Nicaea. We looked at the Nicene Creed, which was uh, early 4th century. That, that combined with the uh, First Council in Constantinople in 381 were instrumental in, in helping us today to be able to think rightly as the scriptures teach about uh, our triune God and how Father, Son, and Holy Spirit uh, share one divine essence and yet are distinct as three persons. And so we looked at Nicaea last week and the important uh, person-nature distinction um, <clears throat> work that, that those faithful church fathers did. We looked at it because at Nicaea, they're really building a foundation, a foundation for us as we move to Chalcedon in 451, which really sets the standard for, for uh, Orthodox Christology for the next 1,600 years. Um, <clears throat> so we, we talked about the church creeds are authoritative. Uh, they're helpful, they're authoritative, but they're only as authoritative as to the degree that they are faithful to Scripture. And with Nicaea and Chalcedon and the first seven or so uh, creeds in the early church through the seventh century, uh, we see that these creeds are really helpful in understanding uh, our, the Trinity, rightly understanding Christology, and uh, they are faithful reflections of what the scriptures are teaching. Uh, we then also, you know, talked about the Reformation, uh, justification by faith alone. Those creeds are authoritative to the degree that they reflect scripture. So scripture ultimately is the foundation, found foundational authority for our faith. That is God's revelation and God's revelation alone. Uh, but creeds are themselves authoritative as well uh, because we should take seriously the things that the church has believed for two millennia uh, before we start thinking differently. Um, <clears throat> so they are helpful guardrails as we are wrestling with the text. Um, so in Nicaea, you will remember, it was uh, wonderful and lively, uh, important in Nicaea in 325 under, under one, on your, your guide there, uh, person-nature distinction. Person-nature distinction provides conceptual clarity to address heresies. Uh, so we talk person-nature, that that's a normal thing for Christians to talk about when we're talking about Jesus, uh, the Son having two natures, human nature, divine nature, talk about three persons in the Trinity. But we, we need to remember that we are situated in the 21st century in Western civilization that has inherited all of these uh, wonderful truths, uh, and so we talk about these things normally, uh, not having to put a whole lot of thought into how to formulate, uh, whereas in the 4th century, the church wasn't using the terminology of person and nature. So at Nicaea, you really begin to see there being a sharp distinction in the early church trying to address heresies that are undermining what we now affirm as the Trinity uh, with that terminology, as well as, as a, a proper doctrine of Christ. And so in 325, this is where 
you hear the, you hear the terminology of person and nature. Uh, and that's so very helpful because if we didn't have that, we wouldn't really know how to talk about how, how are the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit distinct? How is Jesus both God and man? Uh, what does that mean? And so person-nature distinction uh, provides tremendous clarity for us. And, and it helps with two heresies in particular that we, that we talked about last week. The first, the Trinitarian heresy, is modalism. Uh, modalism or uh, Sibelianism, after Sibelius, who was the main proponent. And modalism was, was simply the idea that there was one God, and if we're using person-nature language, it's one God, one person. And that one person, one God, has existed or manifested himself uh, in three different modes. Sometimes they use the, the terminology of three different manifestations. And so in the Old Testament, they would say, oh, that's the Father in the Gospels. It was the God man, was man manifesting himself as the Son. And then in the age of the church, Pentecost on, and today we see it's the Spirit is the mode. Uh, but there are no distinctions, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's only one person. And so at Nicaea, they're trying to address that because they're clearly saying that is not biblical. And, and when we say there's only one person... In, in the Godhead, then we are not accurately reflecting the God of Scripture. We're worshiping a different God, not the God revealed in Christ. And so modalism is that first uh, Trinitarian uh, heresy, and the second, we've talked about a lot, is Arianism, uh, after Arius, who is the major proponent. And, and you'll remember that, that that's both a Trinitarian and a Christological heresy, because Arius is arguing that Jesus is more like a demigod. He is the for, firstborn of creation in that he was the first created being. He participated in creation. Uh, he was used by the primary god, but he was a lesser god. Uh, he himself was a creature. He was not uh, the big C creator. Uh, and so obviously that means that the son could not be uh, a part of the godhead. And obviously that means that he is not divine in the sense that the Bible teaches it. So, so we have Arianism cutting, cutting both ways. And so these, with these two heresies, and, and of course we talked about adoptionism. Um, we talked about uh, Ebionism. Uh, there are just a number of Trinitarian heresies early on that the church is having to address. And you will remember last week, and we'll talk about it a little bit more, uh, that at Nicaea, they are trying to emphasize two, two important aspects. Do we remember what those were? Yeah, that's right. All right, so we'll, we'll, we'll start with oneness, right? Um, and so at Nicaea, um, how did they... How did they um, make oneness terminology, or what was the terminology to communicate oneness? That's a better way of putting it. What's the language that they used? It, it's okay for you to use, say the English. Nature. Nature, right? So, 
when, when the early church at Nicaea is talking about the oneness of God, they're saying, how do we, what kind of terminology can we use to communicate that God is one? And so what they came up with was nature. Okay, so nature. Anybody remember the Greek? Extra points. Yeah, you'll remember if, you, if you're looking at the, you, you said part of it. Usia, that's right. Usia, okay. So, so in, making, in making the distinction against Arianism, do we remember the debate? It was something versus something else. So very similar. It's got, it's got an iota. It's same, though. That's right. So, so we had homo usia, right? And we had, who, who was arguing for homo usia? The, the, the right ones, the church, Christians. That's right. Christian orthodoxy. Okay. And then they were arguing against guys who were arguing for homoousias, or homoousia, and those were the Arians, okay? All right, so what does homo mean? Same. What does homoi mean? Similar, okay? So they were arguing that the son is similar to the father, he's not the same. And Nicaea, Athanasius, and these other guys the Cappadocians' fathers would argue, no, they are exactly the same. I mean, and, and I mean, we, we talk about church history, but like a lot of these, I mean, we talk about orthodoxy being like the popular thing, but like Arianism almost destroyed the church. And Athanasius and these other guys seriously suffered for the sake of holding to Orthodox Trinitarian theology. They suffered rejection and they were um, banished uh, because they held to what we would say is Orthodox Trinitarian theology. So what does nature, this is important, what does nature, when we're talking about oneness, what does it describe? The whatness, right? What? Uh, so when we talk about it, we use the example, uh, who is God? How do you answer that? Timothy, you answered the first time last week, and you said God is spirit. And then we started to list a number of attributes. And so when we're talking about nature, we're talking about what something is. We're, we're talking about attributes or properties uh, to describe the, the whatness of something. Um, now, when we went to threeness, what was, the, what was the word that Nicaea came up with to communicate threeness? Person. Do we remember what it is in the Greek? Extra credit. Hyperbole. <laughs> Hypostasis. Hypostatic union. We'll talk about it today. Hypostasis. Hypostasis. Uh, 
okay? So usia and hypostasis, those are the two critical terms that Nicaea came up with to communicate biblical truths that affirmed that God is one, the, the Father and I are one. God is one, Deuteronomy 6. But also to communicate threeness, the Father and I will send you the Spirit. Or the Father sent me, the Son. I obey the Father. So like he's not talking about I obey a mode or a manifestation of me that was present in the Old Testament. I obey a distinct person who is not me, who is other than me. And so threeness, person, or in, the lang- uh, in Latin, persona, uh, but in the Greek, which is what Nicaea and Chalcedon, these, these early creeds are written in, hypostasis. And so what, what, is that, what does that describe? The who, right? Now we talked about it being, we talked about it being the active subject. Okay, we're going to talk about that this evening. The who of something or the I. So at Nicaea, we saw three distinct what Nicaea, or in the scriptures, what Nicaea is saying is we see three distinct persons. Persons. And who are those three distinct persons? Can I, uh, can I erase this? I can. All right. All right, this is, this is like, like for real basic, basic, basic Orthodox Christianity. Who, who are the three distinct persons? Somebody be bold. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Praise the Lord. All right, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Okay, so they, they described Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as three distinct persons who shared one divine nature. So, the Father is omniscient, as is the Son, as is the Spirit. The Father has the same authority as the Son, as the Spirit. The Father is imminent or near to us, as is the Son, as is the Spirit. We talked about these three distinct persons are one in essence or nature, but we also talked about them working inseparably to accomplish everything that they do. So the Father sent the Son to accomplish our redemption by becoming incarnate, and the Son and the Father sent the Spirit to apply the redemption of the Son to those whom the Father elected unto salvation. They're working inseparably in everything and every task they're working together perfectly but we talked about different actions terminating on different people in that work so like it was not the father who became incarnate it was the son who became incarnate to accomplish that that work of redemption so we we talked about how um when we look at the scriptures it's it's not too difficult to see that there are distinctions in the way that the three persons of the Trinity work. Like they do different work as they work together, right? And so that 
We, we've talked about it uh, before. That's, that's just called, in Trinitarian language, that's called ad, ad extra. Uh, the, the triune God working um, in creation, in redemption. Those things that we see God doing in creation, we can make distinctions between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit by looking at the different jobs that they had. So, but then Nicaea is also wanting to make sure, like, uh, again, against Arianism, like the sun pre-existed creation, right? So how do we make distinctions if, if Arianism is saying that the, the sun was created? How, how do we dispute that and then make distinctions between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in eternity past? Uh, how do we make distinctions over and against modalism where they're arguing that one God's existed forever, but he's only existed in one manifestation at a time. How do we make those distinctions prior to God working in history? And so th- this is what we call ad intra, who God is in himself. And so we can only go, go on what, what God has revealed in Scripture to make distinctions between the persons. Okay, Ted, did you hear Yes. So I, I certainly think let us make man in our image in Genesis one twenty six. Like that certainly communicates I think Trinitarian theology if we're zooming out and looking at it from the canonical level. It it doesn't tell us that's creation. It doesn't tell us anything before God spoke. And so Nicaea, over and against modalism and over and against Arianism, these other heresies that are saying there, there are no distinctions between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's just one God. How, how are they making those distinctions in eternity past? And so they simply looked at how God had revealed himself. And so uh, I think that this is your, I'll just carry this with me. All right, so in 1.3, we see that the Father, by revealing himself as Father, we can say, okay, well, what does that mean? Because in, in earthly terminology, that means like I had a kid by virtue of sexual union with a woman. Well, that's not God. So what does that mean? Well, that if God has revealed himself as Father, that means that he has paternity. Why do we say that? Because the Son does not have paternity. And neither does the Spirit. So paternity just in itself is separating the Father from the Son and the Spirit. Right? So the Son isn't the Father because he does not have paternity. He has filiation. In nomine patris et fili, spiritus sancti, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, when I give the Latin blessing, the papal blessing to... I've given the papal blessing to most everybody here, right? When I do that, yeah. So this is, just, this is just coming from the Latin, filiation. That means sonship. Okay? Filiation. Okay. Well, we, we also know that uh, John 3.16, Psalm 2, um, begotten son. Okay? So 
the Father has begotten the Son. Now, when we think about begotten, we think about, again, we think about sexual union. Okay, that, that, that can't be what it's describing. Okay, so what we can say is, well, okay, if, it's, if the Son is begotten, that means that the one who begot him or beget him is unbegotten. Okay, that, that's separating Father from Son. And the Son is begotten. Well, then we can think, okay, well, what does that mean? Well, Nicaea said begotten, not made. Um, but we can also think about it in something we talked about uh, last week in terms of eternal generation. Okay? Because when we think about begotten, that means to generate. To generate another, another offspring after you, right? So... If we just said that the son has the, um, uh, I guess, property um, of, or characteristic of generation, then then somebody could say, okay, so there was a time where the son was not, because the father generated the son. And so what Nicaea said was, no, 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 eternal generation. So begotten and eternal generation are informing one another. What does it mean to be begotten? Well, it doesn't mean to be made. It means to be eternally generated from the Father. Right? Eternal generation and sharing this divine and sharing that one divine essence or nature. Um, <clears throat> so in, in terms of the spirit, we talked about eternal procession. The Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. And one thing we did not talk about last week was also spiration. Okay, what does that mean? That means to be breathed out. Okay, so when we're, when we're talking about Scripture being breathed out by God, it's that language being applied to the Spirit to make the case that the Father is not breathed out. The Spirit is. Okay, the, the Son is, does not e eternally proceed from the Father and the Spirit. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Son is the begotten of the Father, because the, a Father begets a Son. A Son is begotten from a Father, but it's not, a, it's not being made, it's not being created. It's an eternal generation. Okay, and we also... Paternity filiation. So these, these are these ideas that Nicaea is putting together simply to reflect biblical ideas, biblical realities, to help us to think, well, no, 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 modalism cannot be right because the Father is not the Son. The Father has paternity, okay? The Father is unbegotten. The Son is begotten. You can't say of one God who has one person that he is both unbegotten and begotten. That is logically inconsistent, okay? And we talked about Father and, father and Son sending the Spirit. This is, a, this is not a, a one-time sending. This is an eternal procession of Spirit proceeding from the Father and Son and sharing the same divine nature. Okay, so these characteristics here are, are simply trying to describe these distinctions ad intra in who God is before creation. I mean, also today, right, and forever, trying to make these three 
distinctions here so that they can confirm what the Bible clearly teaches, that we're talking about three persons who have existed eternally and who share one divine nature or essence. And yes, they divine, they're, all, they're all equally omniscient, omnipresent, omnipowerful, you know, all, all, all that stuff, but they are not the same in terms of personhood. So this language of person and nature is what's established at Nicaea, okay? And so that's going to carry on into, um, <clears throat> into Chalcedon, because Chalcedon's going to build upon this. Uh, so 1, 3, 1, 4, and 1, 5, they're your answers. 1, 6, what equals oneness? What's the same as oneness? What's the word in the English? Nature, usia, nature equals oneness. That communicates oneness, usia. So 161, it's homoousia, not homoousia. H-O-M-O-usia, not H-O-M-O-I-usia. It's same nature, not similar nature between the Father and the Son. So in 325 at Nicaea, they're only talking about the divine essence shared by the Father and the Son. Okay, well then there's some, there's some controversy as it relates to the Spirit. And so in 381 at the First Council of Constantinople, they revised the Nicene Creed to include the language of the Holy Spirit sharing in that one divine nature, being a distinct person. So, it's nature equals oneness. Uh, nature is the same as usia. That's just the English for usia. It's homoousia, not homoousia. One seven. Person is what communicates threeness. So, hypostasis is, is the Greek for our English person, which communicates not polytheism, but monotheism. All right, so 171 is monotheism, not polytheism. We're not talking about three gods. We're talking about three persons in the one Godhead. So that's Nicaea. That has established a rock-solid foundation upon which 451 in the Council of Chalcedon the church begins to build to address issues related to heresies on Jesus. So, any, any questions before we move on to two? That's literally what they did at Nicaea and Constantinople. That is the early church. You mean first century? Second century? Yes. Yes, they, I mean, Paul was preaching a Trinitarian God. It's not that the 4th century discovered that God was triune. It's that the 4th century created a language that helped us to be able to communicate that God is triune over and against heresies that were saying that he was not. Uh, no, I wouldn't say that it was lost. It was just with heretics saying that's not true. They were like, okay, we've got to come up with terminology to clearly communicate biblical ideas. 
Saved by faith alone. Yeah, I mean, so in, in preaching justification by faith alone, yeah, Paul is teaching clearly the gospel. He's defending it over and against Judaizers. Uh, and then that's picked up again in the Reformation when that's like the gospel's recaptured, so to speak. I mean, the gospel is never lost. It's just that the church was much smaller than what many people called the church. Uh, so the important thing in the fourth century is that the, the church now, now has extra biblical language and terminology to describe biblical truths. So that you and I can talk about person and nature. You don't find person and nature in the Bible. But you certainly find person and nature in the Bible. It's just those categories are there. The ideas are there, not the terminology. Same way with Trinity, hypostatic union, communication of attributes. All these, all these extra-biblical terms that we use to describe biblical realities so that we can defend the faith. And that's, I mean, we, talk, we talked about it last week, but that's often what heresies do. The, the, the positive side of heresies is that it forces the church to be even more clear on what it believes and what the scriptures teach. Um, all right, so five points succinctly capture the heart of Chalcedon. Chalcedon's 451 AD. All right, so the first is that Christ was truly and perfectly God and man. Christ was truly and perfectly God and man. Okay, and they're going to use the terminology of person nature, hypostasis and usia, to be able to defend that. And if y'all have, each of you hopefully has a copy of the Chalcedonian Creed, where they're going to be, you're going to see these ideas reflecting. We'll read that in a bit. Uh, so two one, Christ was truly and perfectly God and man. All right, two two, the Son is the active subject of the incarnation. We'll talk about what that means in just a second. But the Son is the active subject of the incarnation. The person of the Son, not a nature, becomes flesh. Okay, so Chalcedon is going to argue and teach us that Scripture presents the Son, the person of the Son becomes flesh, not a human nature becoming flesh. All right, so the Son himself, the person of the Son becomes man. All right, so two, three. Well, before we do that, well, let's talk about active subject. Okay, so when we talk about person... We're, we're talk, again, we're talking about who, and we're talking about the I of something. Uh, so when we're, when we're thinking about just basic grammar, okay, in a sentence. So uh, the subject of a sentence, let's just, for the sake of argument, it's a person. The subject of a sentence, a person, is, is the person who is doing the action, who is, who is the subject of the verb, doing the action, or if it's in the passive, not the active, 
It is the, the, that, that person is the one receiving the action. Okay? So when, when we're talking about the person being the ag- active subject, we're talking about person being the one who does things or to whom things are done. Okay? That is, we're not saying that the nature is the active subject. We're saying person is the active subject. So who are the three persons that we've already talked about? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So in Chalcedon, they're taking specifically the Son, and they're saying the Son, the person of God the Son, is the active subject of the Incarnation, which means that it is the Son... The Son is the one who is doing the action or to whom action is being done. Okay? Not a divine nature, not a human nature. That's something separate. That describes what? I just said it. (laughs) The what of something. The attributes, the characteristics, the substance of something. So, the Son is the active subject of the Incarnation. The person of the Son, not a nature, becomes flesh. Okay? And when we talk about flesh, we're using it not in the sense of early Greek philosophy. We're using it in in the sense that John and his gospel would say, the word became flesh. What, What does he mean by flesh? He does not simply mean bone and skin and muscle and tissue. He means fully man. Fully encapsulated. Man. Um, and so we need to talk about, well, okay, well, what makes up a man? That's important, and because that's going <laughs> to contribute to a lot of these heresies. Uh, two, three. Just so we remember. Hypostasis in the Greek is the person. All right, two, three. Christ's human nature did not have a person of its own. Okay? So when the Son became incarnate, He did not take upon Himself another person. The person of the Son took upon Himself a true and full human nature. He added to Himself so he did not become two people. So we'll, we'll talk about what that means. <laughs> I'm telling you, this is... All right. All right, so... <laughs> no, now we're, just, now we're just talking about... We're just using English. <laughs> Christ's human nature did not have a person of its own. Okay, now this is... This is English, but this is transliteration from the Greek, all right? All right, okay. So, in parentheses, an hypostasia. What is that, an? No person. No person. Oh, just wait, it gets more exciting. When the Son became incarnate, He became incarnate an hypostasia. He became incarnate without taking upon himself another person. Okay? That's, that's going to be another heresy we talk about Nestorianism. Okay? He did not take upon himself another person. He took upon himself another 
nature. Okay? Because a nature is not a who. A nature is a what. And the active subject is the one doing the what in and through a particular nature, acting according to its nature, his or her nature. Yes? Uh, similarly, that's actually going to be closer to another heresy. We'll talk about it in just a minute. You eager beaver guy over here. I love it. Where have you been all six weeks? I need, I need, I need somebody super excited in the second row to keep me going. <laughs> yes, yes, it's because of the guy two, two rows behind you. Um, all right, so Christ's human nature did not have a person of its own, Okay. We're going to talk about it, but the person of that human nature is the person of the Son. Okay? Uh, so, and hypostasia. All right, 2-4. Chalcedon taught there is no union of the natures that obscures the integrity of either nature. They don't blend Okay, so there's no union of the human and divine natures. There's no union of the natures that obscures the integrity of either nature. Again, that's another heresy. We'll talk about that in a second. So very, very important for our purposes is that in the incarnation, the creator-creature distinction is kept. Okay? The Son of the Divine, Eternal Son of God, Creator, takes upon Himself a human nature that is creation. And that person, the Son, in and through His human nature, becomes a creature. Alright? So, Creator-Creature distinction is kept because there is no union between the Divine and human natures. There's no blending. Okay? All right, 2-5. The Son took to Himself a complete human nature comprised of a rational soul and body. The Son took to Himself a complete human nature what is a complete human nature? What does it mean to be man? Comprised of a rational soul and body. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and read the Chalcedonian statement just so that we've actually done that. It would be a travesty if we did not read it while talking about it. But you should have a copy of it with you, Lord willing. Uh, all right, so 451, Chalcedonian Creed. We then, following the Holy Fathers, Holy Fathers of Nicaea, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in deity and the same perfect in manness. Two distinct natures there. 
truly God and truly man, the same of a reasonable or rational soul and body, consubstantial or co-essential one with the Father, according to the deity. So he's just simply saying the Son is, is one with the Father in, in terms of divine nature. And the same consubstantial with us, according to manness. So he's, he's equally God with the Father, in and through his divine nature, equally man with us, in and through his human nature. Okay, same consubstantial with us, according to manness, like us, according to all things, except sin. Okay, we'll talk, that, talk about that at the end. Begotten before all ages of the Father, according to the deity. So before all ages is, is referring to that eternal generation or eternally begotten. And in these latter days, for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, Theotokos, that's going to become important in, in, a, in a Christological heresy later, according to the manness, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, being made known in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of the natures being by no means taken away by the union, so that what we just talked about, no union of the natures, their distinct natures and the one person, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same son. Okay, so what it's saying is human nature and divine nature are both preserved. They are not united. They are not blended. They do not create a third thing. They are distinct natures from one another, and they, the, the person of the Son subsist in and through each of those natures. All right? He acts in and through each of those natures because the person is the active subject. Okay? One and the same Son, the only begotten God, the, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets of old declared concerning Him, and the Lord Jesus Christ Himself has taught us, and the uh, creed or the Nicene Creed of the Holy Fathers has been handed down to us. Okay, so in short, what are, what are they saying? One person, two natures. One person, two natures. One person, two natures. That's, that's what the creed is arguing. One person, the Son, two natures. Fully man, fully God. All right, so 2-6, two, 2-6, six, two, six, Chalcedon, we, t- we talked last week about at Nicaea uh, and, and leading up to Chalcedon that the early church had to defend uh, the Trinity and uh, Christology, Orthodox uh, Christology, from lots of different heresies. Uh, Docetism, we talked about Docetism, where the argument was that he only appeared to be man, but he was not truly man. So they say, no, 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 he's, he's fully man, reasonable reasonable soul and body. Uh, We talked about adoptionism where God finds this great guy, Jesus, and adopts him, pours out the Christ or the Logos on him at his baptism, and then at the crucifixion pulls him and the man Jesus is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All right, so he's not truly divine. Okay, we talked about modalism earlier. That's rejection of the Trinity. Rejection of the deity of Christ. Talked about Arianism. That's the rejection of the deity of Christ. And then there are three additional heresies that Chalcedon is, is looking to refute. Uh, Apollinarianism, 
All right, so hold on, let me, I realized I need to write this down. All right, <clears throat> Apollinarianism. <laughs> Look at that pretty girl. Apollinarianism is 261. What does what is, what is Apollinarius argue? Uh, if I'm not mistaken, um, Apollinarius was a strong defender of the deity of Christ at Nicaea. He's actually good friends with Athanasius. But then he started arguing for um, Christ possessing a human body, but rather than having a, a human soul, it was the logos, the word, that took the place of the human soul. Okay? So, what, what do we remember from Chalcedon saying? Reasonable, rational, soul and body okay so why is that wrong to argue that the divine son or logos took the place of the soul and just gave himself a human body right so it like it's what we'll talk about here in a This idea of word flesh versus word man, um, for several hundred years there's this debate over who was Christ. Word flesh was, was uh, less of a humanity because flesh was really uh, understood to be just like skin and bones. Whereas word man was like, no, 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 body and soul, body and soul. And so if, if the Christ has a human body, but the Logos takes the place of the human soul, you do not have a fully human mediator. Because I have a soul, and it's been corrupted by sin. And so one of the, the Cappadocian fathers, Gregory of Nazianus, would argue, we've talked about it a couple of times, that which is not assumed is not healed. So if I'm going to be healed, body and soul, I've got to have, I've got to have a Savior that can heal me bodily, body and soul. Not just represent me bodily, but can in every way understand me and obey body and soul. And so Apollinarianism, just to put it simply, was the Logos took the place of the human soul. And so Christ did not have a human soul. Which is an incomplete humanity. And an incomplete humanity is an incomplete Savior. An incomplete Savior is a Savior who doesn't save. 
So now Brennan and I have talked about it. Uh, um, a proponent today of something akin to Apollinarianism would be William Lane Craig. I don't know. No, 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 no. I, I, I just don't, I don't. Uh, I mean, it, it could be. I just need to read. I, I don't, I'm, I haven't heard that. Yes. Uh, so William Lane Craig, famous Christian philosopher, would argue that the Logos took the place of the soul in, in the sun, uh, and uh, Christ's human body was a real body, but he did not possess a soul. And so we're going to find out that Apollinarians pretty soon are going to have to uh, situate the will of something in person rather than in nature. And so Christ only had one will, not two wills. We'll talk about that in a little bit and why that's important. But we're going to start to see initial issues for why, okay, wait a, minute, wait a minute, that can't work for a number of reasons. So William Lane Craig argues the same kind of thing. Logos takes place of human soul. Well, how do you, how do you, how do you save someone like me who has a corrupted soul? How do you understand what Paul's saying in Romans 6, that I've been baptized with Christ... In his, I have died with Christ and I've been raised with Christ to new life so that I am no longer a slave to sin. How do you understand him in 2 Corinthians where he's talking about, I think it's 2 Corinthians 4, where the, the outer self is wasting away, but the inner self is being renewed day by day. How do I have a, a, a Jesus who is creating in me a new spirit even as my body is dying if that Jesus didn't have a human soul? So, like, what we are enjoying right now as new creations is not that our bodies are being renewed day by day. Our bodies are dying. But what's our hope? Our bodies that will be raised on the last day when Christ returns. Our current hope is that we have been baptized with the Spirit at conversion, and we have been renewed so that we have a, a new, new hearts and new spirit. And so, like, when we die, our bodies will go in the ground, but our spirits will depart and go with the Lord. How does that spirit, part of me, have a repre representative if that Savior doesn't share one, share in it with me, right? So William Lane Craig will, will argue today, uh, he posted this on his blog in uh, early last year, yeah, Jan I think January 2021, um, arguing that because... Uh, Jesus doesn't exist in our space-time continuum, that he doesn't have a body currently. And so if he doesn't have a body, and you've already said that the Logos took the place of the soul, in what sense is, is Jesus a human today? He says that he has a human nature, but he doesn't define what that actually means. Chalcedon said human nature is body and soul. And so if the body is the only thing that Jesus had that's like me, and he sloughed it off like a snakeskin when he exited our space-time continuum. In what way do I have a, a high priest and mediator sitting at the right hand of the Father interceding for me? I don't. Right. And so that, that's heresy. Chalcedon, church has said that's heresy. And we've said that that's heresy for like 1,600 years.
Yeah, so Apollinarianism would say he had a real body, and Docetism would say he didn't. Yeah, yeah, he wasn't human. Really good hologram, like fantastic. Yeah, but it's very similar in that in that in both heresies you have an incomplete humanity. Very similar. Yep, similar. Uh, Docetism would not say that that the word or logos son took the place of the soul, but rather just kind of like appeared to be human with uh, with flesh. There's some eerie similarities. Nothing new under the sun. All right, so Jesus took on a human body alone, not a human spirit. Jesus then did not have a human will, only a divine will. So Jesus had a human body and a divine soul. That's what Apollinarianism would teach. Okay? So how can Jesus redeem our sinful, fallen wills if he didn't possess a human will? Because my will, my will has been affected by sin. And if he doesn't have a human will, how, how, can he, how, how can he save my will? How can he redeem my will? You need a human will for obedient representation. Okay, uh, so again, they would say flesh, word flesh, that's a no-no word flesh. Flesh means body but not soul. Unlike John, John saying body and soul, true humanity. Okay, the next is monophistism. I, I, I didn't come up with these, all right, just, just so we know. <laughs> no, 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 no. Physis in, physis in Greek is uh, nature. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what it teaches. Now, Eutychius is the one who came up with this, so you could also call it Eutychianism, but I'm going to let you figure out how to spell that. All right? Eutychianism. Okay, so this is the view that, that the Son, Jesus, only had one will. He had a divine, na- or uh, he only had one nature, divine nature, a human nature, joined together, blended to create a third new thing. All right, so a new blended nature that's not human anymore and it's not divine anymore. It's a blended third new thing. So this blended nature, third kind of nature is the result of the incarnation. So Jesus was a mixture of divine and human elements um, in which both were modified to form one new nature. So the issue with monophysitism clearly is that Jesus is neither man nor God. That's you now now you just made both sides angry. Cuz you're not affirming either humanity or divinity. Say say it again. He can't do anything. He can't do anything. No, he's a great observer. That's completely worthless right there. Yes, yes, yes. So, yeah.
Yeah. Distinct natures. Mm-hmm. Well, the Lord is bringing us from one degree of heresy to orthodoxy <laughs> through the process of sanctification. And so, praise the Lord. I have been a heretic many times, unwittingly, unwittingly. So thankful, thankful for the Lord's grace. You just can't, you just can't hold to heresy and not budge. You have to be corrected. You have to be willing to be corrected. That's what separates uh, Christians who believe something heretical and repent versus people who are like, nope. Said un- some unbelievers who are very orthodox. Yeah. Yeah. God's common grace if they're both unbelievers. But it it I would not be shocked if in the final judgment, an unbeliever who had perfect theology is going to endure a greater judgment than someone who had poor judgment or poor theology because they had all of the theology and no belief. So what separates them from like demons? Uh, all right, Nestorianism. Nestorius. Nestorianism was one of these word flesh heresies. And Nestorianism is, is hammered away multiple times in the Chalcedonian Creed. So Nestorianism is the view that there were two separate persons in the incarnation, in Christ. A human person and a divine person. Yeah. So, so Nestorius may not have actually been Nestorian, but he probably was. That's sometimes like, sometimes the heresies that are called after these guys is like, he probably didn't affirm that. But later on, they took some of the things that he said and took it even further into left field. Um, So Nestorianism would argue for something like this. And again, this is like trying to draw something to represent the uh, Trinity. Okay, so like don't push this to the wall. All right, so... Um, when we have Orthodox, Orthodox um, Christology, we, we, we can see it as like the person of the Son who has a divine nature and he adds to himself in the incarnation a human nature and that Son then operates in and both through natures. And then what we're going to find out with... Um, with a communication of attributes, communicatio idiomatum, is that whatever is true of the nature is true of the person. So when we're, when we're talking about Orthodox Christology and we're trying to understand two persons, two natures, this, this is probably the best that I'm going to be able to tell you. That's what that looks like. Nestorianism argued for something uh, like this. The son who had a divine nature... Oh, no. Divine nature then took upon himself 
a human person with a human nature. And so what you have is two persons, two natures. Okay? It, it, yeah. It is, it is a bit like that. Um, <clears throat> so in, in, a, in a way, like, so Robin, like you said, Nestorian, Nestorius or Nestorian uh, advocates would argue that he appeared as one individual, but he's actually two people, two natures. Um, and so this... This, this is going to begin to look like a, a bit like adoptionism. Where, where the son with a divine nature just kind of adopts a guy. You know, and, 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 one in, and becomes one individual, but that one individual is two people, two natures. Yeah, that's right. So two persons, two natures. Um, obviously, Chalcedon's going to argue that we have a consistent picture of a single person, a unified subject, acting in wholeness and unity, acting in and through two distinct natures that are not blended or commingled. Okay. So, we have... Um, <clears throat> When we think about natures, the sun acting in and through natures, the attributes of divinity, the attributes of humanity are then ascribed to the person. The, the person enjoys the properties of these two particular natures. So that Jesus can say, before Abraham was, I am. And who's speaking? The son. Now, we're, we're, we're going to be able to say, again, because of the communication of attributes, Jesus said that. And whatever, whatever is ascribed to divine nature or human nature is, is true of the person Jesus. So, but if we want to be really precise, the person is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, acting in and through Two natures, and so Jesus the man can say before Abraham was, I am. Why? Because it is the Son who is speaking. He is speaking in and through a human nature to describe divine realities, right? So, so again, when we're thinking about person, we're thinking about the person, not the nature. The person is the active subject the one doing things and, and to whom things are being done. The Son is doing things in and through a nature. In and through a nature. He is speaking to Pharisees in and through a human nature as he is describing, yeah, this is who I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Does that make sense? As much as it can. As much as it can. I'm not saying <laughs> you need to write a dissertation or anything like that. So how, 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 do we, how do we describe? How do we describe the union of two natures in a person? So the person, what was, what was the Greek term that we used for person? Hypostasis. So what is the union of two natures in one person? Hypostatic union. Hypostatic union. So 
Whatever is true of the humanity, you can say is true of the person. So the son died. God the son died. You can say that. And then you can also say, God the son can never die. He's never died. He's eternal. God the son is weak and ignorant and grew in wisdom and stature and suffered. God the son has never grown old. He's eternal. He never grows weary, never sleeps, doesn't grow in knowledge, has all knowledge, has always possessed all knowledge, cannot die. God the Son was separated from the Father so that he can say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Son, the eternal divine Son, can never be separated from the Father and did not enjoy any kind of separation or or being forsaken. Why? Because a person can operate in and through the nature. And what's true of the nature is true of the person. We're going to talk about this in a little bit with what the Lutherans, the pejorative insult that Lutherans threw at uh, Calvin as to how that can happen. All right. <clears throat> All right, so we've been, we've been talking about, uh, we've been talking about uh, these wonderful realities. So, oh, before we, before we move any further. Um, Nestorian, Nestorius argued he rejected the idea that Mary was to be considered the God-bearer. He rather wanted to say that she was the Christ-bearer. Like, like, we can think, why, why fuss about, about such things? He's saying that Mary is only bearing a human nature with a human person. By saying Christ-bearer, he's saying Mary did not bear God the Son. She bore Christ with a human nature. Whereas Cyril and the rest of the church is saying, no, Mary bore God the Son. Now, did she bear God the Son in and through His divine nature? No, because He exists everywhere, right? But did she, did she bear God the Son in and through a human nature? You better believe it from the moment of conception on. Yeah, this is nuts. <laughs> so, th- so in calling Mary the God-bearer, this is not saying something great about Mary. I mean, Mary was in a privileged pra- uh, place of grace. Like, wonderful. I mean, can you imagine the privilege in all of humanity to be able to bear the Son of God the savior, savior of his people. Like, what a tremendous grace. But the creed is not saying when it says, the born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, Theotokos, it's not saying something great about Mary. It's saying, no, Mary bore the person of the Son, God the Son. That's who she bore. She did not bear some separate Christ human person who, who had its own, his own face, uh, with his own human nature who was distinct from the Son over here. No, she bore the Son who took upon himself a created human nature, added to himself this. That's who she bore. What's that? But didn't blend. You better not blend them. That's exactly right. None of that monophysitism. None of that monophysitism. Okay, so what is Nestorianism disputing 
it's, 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 rejecting, it's rejecting oneness, right? Apollinarianism is rejecting humanity. Eutychianism is rejecting everything, humanity and divinity. Nestorianism is rejecting oneness. It's not a unified subject. All right, so post-Chalcedon Christology, number three. And we can go through this pretty quickly. All right, so we're, when we're talking about uh, post-Chalcedon Christology, we're talking like 6th, 7th centuries. And during this time is when you're going to start to see the rise of Islam, the early 7th century. Okay, so the Second Council of Constantinople, 553. Robin, get ready to have your head blown. All right, so an important distinction. What did, what did Chalcedon say over and against Nestorianism? The son took upon himself a human nature without taking upon himself a separate human person. An hypostasia. Okay? An hypostasia. This is to reject Nestorianism. He did not take another person. Okay? In the incarnation. Why did he not take another person? Because there was already a person. The son. God the Son. So, this is true over and against Nestorianism, but it's not complete. So, in the uh, Second Council of Constantinople, you're going to have an hypostasia, a distinction being made between no person that's taken in the incarnation and in hypostasia. Which means in person. So the early church is going to say both of these are true. God the Son became incarnate. How did he become incarnate? He became incarnate, over and against Nestorianism, not by taking a separate second person. He became incarnate by taking upon himself a human nature. Well, well, how do you have a nature that's separated from a person? Well, it wasn't separated from a person. That created human nature was given a person. So that human nature was not impersonal. It was impersonal. It was in the Son. So there wasn't a need for a second person. The person already existed and took to himself in his person a separate, distinct nature. Didn't take a second person, took that human nature into his own person. So now, in eternity past, you had the Son with a divine nature. And he always operated and acted in and through that divine nature. And what was true of the divine nature was true of the person. That's eternity past. What's happened now in the incarnation that blows our minds is that now he, has, he still has that divine nature. He's still the eternal divine son, but that divine son takes upon himself a separate, distinct human nature. Not blended, not, not unified in the natures, but unified in the person. Not a new person, 
And this son continues to operate in and through his divine nature, but now he operates in and through human nature, starting with a conception. And there was a time where this started. This is the creature aspect of the incarnation. The creator-creature distinction is maintained because this has always been true. And this started at conception. And will continue forever. That one doesn't end. Neither of these end. Forever, forever, the Son will be fully God, fully man. This one had no beginning, no end. This one had a beginning and has no end. And now what's true of the human nature is true of the Son, and what's true of the divine nature is true of the Son. Yes. The person has changed. In what way? So what you're doing, if you're talking about the sun changing, if, you're, if by change you mean adding a nature, then yes. If you're talking about changing in terms of properties, what you're doing is you're confusing what the church has historically said between person and nature. Properties of something describes the nature of something, not the person. The person is the who. The active subject. So it's not a blending with the divine nature. So did the son change in his personhood? No. Did he change at the nature level? Well, by adding a human nature. Yes. But it didn't change the substance of who he was because the substance is at the level of nature, not person. Who? What? Does that make sense? So we only talk about, oh, the, the, the son, when he became incarnate, he had to change. Well, yes, by adding to himself a nature, but not changing in his divinity. Because that was not commingled. That was not blended. He continues to operate. So Mary is holding him as a baby and feeding him, and he's keeping her atoms together and sustaining her. By the word of his power. Single person. By his own creation. Mm -hmm. That's right. Keeping solar systems together, galaxies, stars exploding, animals eating, insects building nests. Right. We'll talk, we'll talk exactly about that because that is a major sticking point and an insult to Calvin when he argues for something that the church has historically held to. Yes, die, be ignorant, be weak, all those things. And what is true, and what is true of the, what's true of the nature is true of the person. Simultaneously. So at the cross, he is, he is enduring his own wrath, not the Father's, not the Father's only wrath, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. 
God's wrath, triune wrath. Right. Yep. Never been no schism ever. Yes. Yes. Right. Not in and through his divine nature. The the father What's that? He was sinless in the divine nature for sure. He couldn't be forsaken. He could not be forsaken because father-son relations could not be broken. But in and through his human nature, he certainly could be separated from the father. No, it's his human nature is currently glorified, yeah. But it's still human. Yeah, that's right. So, so okay, all right, reining it back in. Like the man Christ Jesus, who's glorified as a man... Is only in one place. And he's coming again. But the divine son is everywhere present all the time. In and through his divine nature. Is at the right hand of the father. But he is present with us currently. Which is where I think you start to see why people were dying in Corinth. And taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy fashion. Because Christ the Son is present with his people. Including in discipline. We'll talk about Lord's Supper in a minute. Alright, we got to get through this. Alright, so. Alright, so. And hypostasia, the Son took upon himself a human nature without taking upon himself a separate human person. That's what that's saying. In hypostasia is that the Son personalizes a human nature okay it is in person not impersonal okay not impersonal but personalizing in person a human nature didn't need an extra person the son the son is the person adds to himself he was emptied emptied himself philippians 2 by adding to himself a human nature he personalizes the human nature. That's created. He's uncreated. All right. Uh, c- uh, 3-2. Communico- communicatio idiomatum. All right. So, it's a lot easier to say than I just did. Can I erase this? Okay. Yeah. Communio, communicatio idiomatum. In quotes, you can either say communication of attributes, which is what this means, or communion in attributes. So the Latin communicatio idiomatum, this is clearly communication. This is idiom, so the communication of attributes idioms, properties, 
however you'd want to define it, it's referring to the same thing. So, what, what I, we were just talking about this, so I don't feel like we need to spend a whole lot of time talking about this, but the person of the Son, again, with our very, very limited uh, diagram here, divine nature, okay, adds a human nature, okay, so the communico, the communicatio idiomatum, dadgummit, why am I writing a plus sign in here? Um, there you go. It is. It is human plus nature. Uh, that's Nestorianism. Um, all right. So, so what the communicatio idiomatum is saying is not only does the Son act, the person of the Son act in and through distinct natures. So he's fully God acting in, in and through his divine nature. That person, the son, is man acting in through the human nature. Not only does he do that, but what we've been saying repeatedly, this is meant to communicate that what is true of the nature is communicated to the person. So it goes both ways. He acts in and through natures. Why? Because the natures are the what? The characteristic, the property of something, the attributes. So the person, the early church is saying, is the who, the active subject. The nature is the what. And so the person acts in and through a nature, but the communicatio idiomatum is saying, okay, well, how, how are those things related? Well, whatever is true of the nature is true of the person. So that's where you can say the son, the son died and the son can never die. Why? Because, well, in and through his human nature, he can. A human nature can, can die. But his divine nature can't. But natures don't do things. People do. So he is operating in and through natures. That's very hard to, I mean, but that's about as... Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yes, absolutely. Yep. And then Hebrews 1 upholds the universe by the word of his power. He was doing that the whole time. Whole time. Over and against canonic theory that we've talked about where he just gave up everything and let the Father do it or the Spirit do it. No, 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 no. In separate operations, he hasn't stopped being divine. He hasn't given that up. Okay, communicatio idiomatum, communication of attributes. So attributes of each nature are to be predicated to the person, okay? What is true of the natures is true of the subject, true of the person. That's what the communication of attributes means, okay? Hypostatic union, we talked about anhypostasia, in hypostasia. Hypostatic union is just the two natures are united in one person, the son, okay? Over and against Nestorianism. Two people, two natures, right? Okay, 3-3. Three, three. This, is, this is the insult during the Reformation uh, from Lutherans. Uh, extra Calvinisticum. All right? The, or we could, you, could, uh, you could call it the extra, but in the quotes it's extra Calvinisticum. And really this is, it should be called extra Catholicum because the church has always believed this. But this comes up because of the Lutherans' beliefs on the Lord's Supper. Okay? So, 
Lutherans are arguing over and against the Roman Catholic uh, group of folks that it's not transubstantiation. The, the bread and the cup do not become the literal body and blood of Jesus. That's Roman Catholicism. But Lutherans say, no, it's not transubstantiation. It's consubstantiation. All right? Which means that though the, the accidents, the, the bread and the cup, don't change themselves, Christ is, is above and under and around the accidents so that when you're eating the Lord's Supper, you're actually eating the body and blood of Christ. But the bread and the cup don't change. It's just that the humanity of Christ is surrounding the accidents. Okay? Calvin says, wait a minute, that isn't work because you are divinizing the humanity of Christ. He's only got so much flesh. His flesh can't be everywhere present. The, bot, the, the human nature, Christ, the Son, in and through His human nature, can't be above and beyond and around and all this kind of stuff, the, the, the elements. That can't be true. So Lutherans use it in a pejorative sense to insult Calvin. Oh, the extra Calvinisticum. And all that that means is what the church has historically argued is that the Son did not stop being divine when He became human. He continued to exercise those divine attributes and properties that were consistent with his divine nature the whole time that he's been human, since conception all the way to today. He didn't stop upholding the universe by the word of his power. He didn't stop being omniscient. And so, you don't have a divinized humanity. You don't have a blending, which is similar to that monophysism. That's, that's what Lutheran's view of Lord's Supper kind of communicates. It's like, wait a minute. Somehow Jesus' humanity kind of becomes divine-ish to where it, like, it can keep being replaced and it can be everywhere that the church is having the supper. And so to, so to insult Calvin, they said, aha, extra Calvinisticum. And it's like, well, that's, I mean, that's exactly what we believe. So the, when, when the Son became incarnate, he didn't stop exercising his divine attributes or properties. Oh, the extra Catholicum. Uh, Catholicum. 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 Extra. Extra Catholicum. So what, what do we mean? What do we mean by that? Not Roman Catholic, but one holy apostolic Catholic church. Universal. Universal. So this has been the Catholic view of the church. Universal of the church since the beginning. Catholicum. 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 I'm just going to keep saying it. Catholicum. Clearly I don't say it very often. But it's Catholicum. All right, 3-4. All right, so uh, this is controversy at the Third Council of Constantinople, 681. I'm not even going to write it down because I know how y'all know how to spell this. Monothelitism versus diothelitism. All right. I was kidding. Monothelitism versus diothelitism. 
Monothelites versus diothelites. What does that mean? <laughs> uh, one will versus two wills. One wills versus two wills. Okay, so the monothelites would argue that the son had one will. The incarnate son had one will. Diathelites, which is the historic view of the church, is that the, divine, is that the incarnate son had two wills. He had a divine will and he had a human will. So, in arguing for will, the monothelites would, would argue that it needs to be grounded in the person. Diathelites would say, no, will is tied to nature. Okay, they said, no, but it's a person who wills, it's a willer. And diathelites said, yes, but there's a difference between a willer and a will. So yes, there is an active subject who is willing, but the willer and the willing act of willing itself are two separate things. And so monothelites would say, one person, one will. Diathelites would say, two natures, two wills. So, big crux, best example, Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if it's your will, take this cup from me. But not my will, your will be done. The, the, the divine son shares a will. If, if will is tied to nature, not person, then you have one will in God. One will. Because it's one divine nature. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share one divine will. Yes. 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 And if we have one will tied to person, then what you have is three wills in God. And this is where you get social trinitarianism. This is often where you get like authority issues and roles. Subjugated son is subjugated to the father in authority and function. Um, let me finish this real quick and I'll come back to you. <clears throat> so... So the capacity to will and a willer are separate. Diathelites, which would be all of us, if, you don't, if he didn't have a human will, how does he redeem a human will? He's got to have a human will. He's got to have a human will. Again, that which is not assumed is not healed. Okay, last one, three, five. Uh, peckable or impeccable? Peckable? What say you? Yep. Yeah, no sin. Or, yeah, the ability. Able to sin. Able to sin. Impeccable. Okay, so let, let's talk about it real quick. And then we can finish, and then everybody can leave. Who wants to leave, and we can talk about it more. What does it mean to, what does it mean to be human? Does it mean... What does it mean to be human? To be human, does that mean that we... 
sin? Is it to err is human? Is that proper? Right. What, what is true humanity? Jesus, but, but prior to Jesus, where do you see true humanity? Adam, Adam prior to Genesis 3. So we don't say Adam and Eve were less human because they didn't sin. We say that they were truly human. So Christ being truly human, if we understand what it means to be really human, we're not going to become not human in the new creation, in our glorified state. We're, we're going to become truly human. We're going to be like Christ in every way. And so the Son, in becoming man, it doesn't mean to, be, to become fallen. That's the, that's the distortion of creation. Um, and impeccable, we have to think about it also at Trinitarian Relations. It is God the Son who's taking upon himself a human nature. God the, the Son in relation to the Father and the Spirit can't be sin. Even at the nature level, can't, can't be sin. So impeccable. He was not fallen. He did not take upon himself a fallen nature. He was not able to sin. He was tempted. And in the same way that like um, if you have never run a marathon and you want someone to coach you to run a marathon, you don't want someone coaching you who has always quit at mile marker four. You want someone who has gone the whole way and not failed. That's who you want. And that's Jesus, okay? So that's the kind of Savior that we need. We, we don't need a guy who's like, just like us. We need somebody who's not like us, you know, without sin. Tempted in every way, yet without sin.